If I were to uh, take one of these mics and walk out through the crowd, which I actually thought about doing, but I didn't want anybody to have a heart attack. Um, and I walked up to you and I said, you have five minutes to interview God. What would you ask him? You have five minutes, just you and God, you get to interview him. What are your questions? What would you ask him? What would you ask him? I saw a clip on YouTube of this situation on a man on the street kind of thing. It was very interesting to see the kinds of questions that people ask. I think a lot of us would say, why did you do so-and-so, God? What are you doing over here, God, or are you doing anything? Why aren't you doing something and fixing this? I think we all have our questions, and at times, if we're honest, at times those questions come out of sometimes we get frustrated with God. Because he doesn't do what we think he should, or how he acts doesn't make sense to us, and we might feel a little irreverent saying, I'm frustrated with God, but... Bottom line, there is a little frustration there. In a sense, that's exactly where Jonah was. Um, This really is the book of Jonah. Because if you've been here for the previous Sundays, we could have really ended last week if it was the book of Nineveh. Because Nineveh repented. And in in one sense, it would be easy to read through chapter 3 and say, story's over. But this really is the book of Jonah. And Jonah wasn't done. And I, I, obviously I'm a preacher. I just think it's fascinating because the book of Jonah is really the story of a successful preacher and his success caused him to be depressed. And you really think about it and say, well, that's sort of crazy. And it is, but that's really what chapter 4 is all about. Because Jonah didn't like the results of what happened. He was, in a sense, frustrated with God. And I think there's a real big lesson for us to learn in looking at why Jonah was frustrated with God and what we need to learn about working with God, or we'll be right where Jonah was. And that's what I want to try and do today, okay? So if you'll turn over with me in Jonah 4, I want to read the first three verses to start with, and keep your finger there, because we're going to come back. But it sort of lays out why Jonah was frustrated. Now, remember, we ended chapter 3. He preached, Nineveh repented, even up to the king. And they all said, God, we're sorry, we're going to change. And God forgave them. So that sort of sets the stage. And then we start in chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Angry with God. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Parentheses. I knew you'd forgive him. Now, Lord, you've done it. Take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live watching you forgive them, people. Isn't that a pretty candid picture of Jonah? No candy coating here. 
it's so interesting what Jonah is up front with God. I knew you're a forgiving God, and I knew if there was a chance you'd forgive him. And now you've gone and done it. And I'm so bummed, I wish you'd take my life. It's quite a statement about Jonah. Obviously, Jonah wanted a different outcome. And we've talked throughout this sermon series some of the history we know about Nineveh and Israel. Nineveh was the arch enemy of Israel, so Jonah would just assume God would have defeated them, not let them off the hook. We know from history and archaeology that the religions of Nineveh were very pagan and in many cases very brutal, brutal, even involving child sacrifice. It was not a good place. And so I think a lot of us would have agreed with Jonah. They, they needed to be punished. They needed to be held accountable. They needed to experience consequences. All kinds of concepts that we talk about today and, and we're in favor of. And Jonah was saying, that, that's where I am. God, you need to be punishing them and you're forgiving them. What it teaches us is that Jonah's heart wasn't as big as God's heart, was it? And he really didn't want to change. It was already a done deal. Jonah had been forgiven. And he's sitting up on a hill watching this forgiven city go right on with their living. And he's saying, just take my life. Well, God responds to Jonah. And it's interesting in God's response and what we're going to see. Because on the one hand, God doesn't change just because Jonah's upset. Just because we get frustrated with him, God doesn't say, okay, well, I need to please you, so I'll change. But God also doesn't wipe out Jonah. You know, you, you could see God saying, well, you're going to talk that way to me, and he just squashed Jonah like a bug. He doesn't do that either. He actually comes to Jonah, I would put it, to help Jonah's heart expand. To try and help Jonah understand so that his heart can be as big as God's heart. And so he comes as a loving father. He not only loves Nineveh, he loves Jonah. And he comes to Jonah to try to help him understand some stuff. Let's read, uh, go back to chapter 4 and read 4 through 9. But the Lord says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Now Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. Remember, this is Iraq, that very dry, hot place just, just east of Mosul. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Isn't that an interesting phrase? He waited to see what would happen to the city. Do you think he was hoping that maybe Nineveh will renege? Maybe they won't follow through and God's still going to wipe them out? Maybe he was hoping for that? We don't know. It just says he sat and he's watched. And it's sort of like, okay, I want to see what happens here. And he's sitting out on this hill watching Nineveh. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort in the heat. We know what a rock's like. We've seen it on our news for years. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on, on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is. 
Yeah, I should be angry. I'm hot here. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. It's just a pretty painfully honest picture about Jonah. Who does Jonah care about? Himself. Don't you see that here? He's really focused on himself. His comfort, his expectations, his idea of right and wrong, who he thinks should be punished and who should get off. The interesting thing is that's not who God is focused on. And this chapter shows us such a huge contrast between Jonah's heart that looks like a lot of our hearts and God's heart. Because Jonah is pretty wrapped up in himself. Whether it's his comfort or his, his way he thinks things should go. If God were that way, Jesus would have never come to earth. One of the things we learn about God, we know as Christians, is how God isn't wrapped up in himself. That beautiful passage of Philippians 2 where it says, Jesus let go of all of his rights and privileges of being God and came to earth. And not just came to earth to take on human form, but take on the form of a servant and serve to the point of dying on a cross. There was nothing in what Jesus did and what God did in Jesus was about himself. There was nothing in Nineveh, and forgiving Nineveh, that was about himself. God's heart cared for his children. And that's why God did what he did. Now, it would be easy to be pretty hard on Jonah, but as we've seen throughout this series, I've tried to show how the truth is we all wrestle with some of the things Jonah wrestled with. And I'm not sure we are all that different from Jonah. Jesus told a parable. I think it's one of his um, parables that challenges us the most. And it gets at this very attitude that I think Jonah had. It's in Matthew 20. And it's actually the parable, it's uh, the first 15 verses. I'm not going to read it, but can I summarize it? It's a, it's a landowner, a, a wealthy farmer. And he goes down into the village and gets some temporary day help. If any of you have lived in California, especially Southern California, you just know how that is a part of life there. And you go down to the corner, you go down to Home Depot, whatever, and you get some day help. So he goes down first thing in the morning. He promises people, if you'll come work for me today, you get a denarius. So he gets his crew and he goes back to the farm. Uh, Whatever is happening, he decides he needs more help. Maybe things are going extremely well or these guys are slow. We don't know what, but he decides he needs more help. So he goes back down to the center of the village and gets some more day help. And he says, hey, I'm paying a denarius a day. So he gets some more guys. Well, he does that a couple times. And he finally does it. He's going through the village. It, It says late in the afternoon. And he st- still sees some guys, and he says, what are you doing here? And he said, well, nobody hired us. And he said, okay, I'll hire you. Come on out. You can work the rest of the day for me. So, so far, it's all fine till the end of the day, and it's just day help, so you get paid at the end of the day. So they all gather around to get paid. Now, there's one interesting detail here that Jesus puts in. He paid the last to start first. Which means that everybody who'd been working from the first light was watching. Because they were going to be the last to get paid. So they all line up to get paid, and the guys who hadn't started till 5 o'clock in the afternoon, the owner hands them a denarius. 
he was paying a denarius a day. And they're thrilled, and they take off. And then he starts coming up to those who started at noon and those who started at nine, and they all get a denarius, and finally he gets to the guy's first thing in the morning. And guess how they feel? They're really been out of shape. Wait a minute, those guys who started at five o'clock in the afternoon got a denarius, and that's what you're paying us? And as the owner ends in the parable, he says, wait a minute. What did you agree to work for? A denarius. Am I paying you what you agreed for? Yeah. What's the problem? And the owner says, if I want to be generous and give everybody denarius, what's that to you? You get your denarius. Now, like I said, that's one of Jesus' head-scratching parables, and he tells a few of them. But I think part of what he's trying to drive home, because he's teaching about himself and the kingdom of God, is we all need grace. Some of you get grace real early. You're young, whatever, and you live a long life with me and grace, and your sins are forgiven. And some of you, it's at the last minute. And your tendency might be to say, but look at all they did wrong. How are they getting off the hook? But Jesus' point is, it's all by grace. Whether we get grace here or here, whether we live this long in sin or this long in sin, guess what, folks? We've all lived in sin, and we all need grace. That's the challenge of this story. Jonah didn't get that. He'd worked hard to obey the law. We would know. Paul teaches that. He was still a sinner. Jonah didn't do it all right. Everybody breaks the law sooner or later in some way. None of us can earn our way into heaven. Nineveh? Yeah, they'd done lots of sin and lots of evil. But what did they need? Forgiveness. God's grace. God understood that. He knows that's our plight. Jonah didn't get that. It's easy for us to say that's not fair. But Jesus says, yeah, it is. You all need my blood. You all need the cross. We're all at the same spot. I love that phrase. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody has a higher pile of dirt to stand on. Now, we may have a higher pile of dirt of our sins, but the truth is we're all at the same spot. We all need that grace. Well, we've got to read one more piece of Jonah 4 because God goes on to, in a sense, try and give Jonah a further explanation of why he did what he did. From Jonah's perspective, why he did the wrong thing. Because that's how Jonah saw it. And God explains why. In 10 and 11, the Lord said to Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight, and you're all been out of shape about the plant. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many animals as well. What a window into God's heart. 
Jonah, you're been out of shape about one plant that grew up and shaded you for a day in the heat and it, and it died. You're compar- you're car- you are concerned about a plant. I'm worried about 120,000 people that are so lost, so confused, so mixed up, upside down in their lives by their choices, the way they're living. They can't even tell their left hand from their right hand. How can I not care about them? That is the message of the whole book of Jonah. The message of God's heart and why he sends Christ. Why he is patient. Why there is such a thing as grace. Because of how much God cares. And God hasn't changed. That is still his driving motive today. Perhaps one of the strongest statements of that is in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates. God goes so far to give proof that will remove any doubt. That's the, the word that is used there for demonstrate. To give so much proof that doubt is removed. That he loves us that much. That he didn't wait for us to earn it. He didn't wait for us to be good enough. He died for us. Christ died. That's what drives God. And that's why he is willing to forgive Nineveh. And that's why he asks us to help reach out to his children who are far from him like he did for Jonah. He asks us to see his children like he does. People who can't tell their left hand from their right hand. That's, in a sense, the lesson of chapter 4. But you actually get two sermons today because I think there's a larger lesson. We could really stop there and I think we would have covered Jonah. But there is a second lesson that I want to draw out for us because I think it's equally important. We've seen God's heart. We've seen how he's willing to forgive, how he wants to forgive. But the second lesson is, I think like Jonah, there's a lot of times we're not going to understand what God is doing. Why God does what he does. Why he doesn't do what we think he should do. And I think that's the other lesson of Jonah for us. And if, if we're going to help him reach his lost children, if we're going to take our role beside him, beside Christ, being Jonah to our Nineveh, there is a lesson for us here. And that is that oftentimes God may surprise us like he surprised Jonah. Could we use that word, God can be very frustrating for us? There's a passage we like to read and we draw comfort from it. I'm not sure that's how God intended it. The passage is in Isaiah 55. God is speaking here and he's saying to Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now we use this text a lot to draw comfort in how God is superior to us. But in some ways, you, you know, I think God was giving us a warning. A warning when he says, I'm not going to do it the way you think I should. 
And I'm going to tell you in advance. So when it happens, you maybe don't get so frustrated. God won't do what we think he should. And he is telling us beforehand, I just need to prepare you. Before you go out there with me, before you get involved in people's lives, before you do any of that, don't get mad at me. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to do everything you think I should. And I think we all experience that with God. That's a lot of the questions we'd like to ask him if we could interview him. Times when God hasn't done what we thought he should. He didn't show up. And we were convinced he should. He didn't fit our expectations. He didn't perform like we thought God should. Now there's times the opposite of that. The second verse is also true. He's going to show up and do things that are so much beyond. And sometimes that's going to be in miracles. And we love those. When God shows up and just comes, uh, pulls off that come from behind victory. And we say, way to go God. But you know, there's other times when that not doing what we expect and doing differently, it creates some of our greatest stress. Because sometimes God lets bad things happen that we don't think he should have let happen. Sometimes he lets us fall on our faces and fail. And we wonder, why didn't he bless? Why didn't he come through? Sometimes we've made the effort to try and talk to someone. Or, or start up a spiritual conversation or invite somebody to come with us to something and the door is slammed in our face. And we're embarrassed and we're hurt and we're like, God, I, I was out there for you. I, I took a risk for you and, and you didn't come through. What's going on? And God said, I, I warned you. I'm not going to do it your way all the time. Often. I'm going to do it differently. And sometimes different isn't fun. Because sometimes God lets nobody come. Nobody listens. We work so hard to prepare for something and it falls flat. And we're saying, how come? How do we handle that? How do we handle that frustration with God? Here's the solution I know. We have to focus on what we do know. The facts. Three things. One, God loves us. That love of God is a fact. So I can rest in that. I, I may not understand the circumstances. I may not understand the events. I may not understand why God is moving or God is not moving. God is allowing evil to seem to grow. All those things I may not understand. What do I know? God loves me. He said it. He's proved it. And we're going to go there in a minute. The second fact I know is God not only loves me, he loves them. He may not have brought anybody to that new meeting we planned to reach out to lost people. He may not have blessed this event. He may not have had anybody show up. That does not change the fact he loves them. I don't know what he's doing, but I know he loves them as much as he loves me. That is a fact. It was a fact for Nineveh, and it is a fact he has consistently said through Scripture. That is a fact. He loves them. 
The third thing is a fact is he's smarter than we are. That's a fact. His ways are higher. Now we need to be honest a little bit on that fact. Because a lot of times when I get bent out of shape, what is my conversation with God? God, I know you don't understand this, but... Really? God, I know you hadn't figured this out like I figured it out, so I want to explain this to you, and that's what our prayers become. He really hadn't figured it out. He's that much dumber than me? No, the fact is, he is smarter than me. So that means if things appear illogical to me, it's not God's logic that's faulty, it's my logic that's faulty. And that's a fact I have to remind myself of. Because frequently I get wrapped up in my logic and how, just how great it is. And how I just need to straighten God out so he'll understand it the right way. Which, of course, translates into my way. If we understand those three facts, then that allows us, and we've got to remind ourselves, hourly, minute by minute, then we're able to move beyond frustration. Accept the warning of Isaiah 55. And move beyond frustration, not run away like Jonah, take our toys and go home, but God, if you're not going to do it my way, I'm going to go sit on a hill. I just want my life to be over. There is another option. It is really cool, but it takes guts to get there. And the other option is to stay engaged and watch the show. Watch whatever it is God's doing. We know for a fact he loves us. We know for a fact he loves them. We know for a fact he is way smarter than I am and he is not off the playing field. So what is he doing? Well, that's where you've got to wait. Peggy and I have our own TV shows that we're hooked on like all of you are. And one of the interesting things about the TV shows is, you know what, there's a few key actors in the play that are probably not going to die. Because their, their faces are on the credits, and if they died, they'd have to redo the credits. So we know they're going to stay around. So then, of course, it's interesting to watch the show because they always take you to a point where it's like, they're going to die, they're going to die, they're going to die. But you know they're not because they're the star. And how in the world do they pull this off? And that's why we watch week after week after week after week. Because you know. Well, we know some things about God. He wins. He loves them. He loves us. He's smarter than us. So what I want us to do is come to the point where we start watching the show with God. God, how in the world are you going to pull this off? God, what are you doing here? What do you have planned here? It obviously wasn't what I had planned. You just let me fall on my face. I just bombed out there really bad, God. But I know you love me, I know you love them, and I know you're smarter than me. What are you going to do? And that's when it becomes really fun to watch God. Not get frustrated, not say I'm done, but to say, God, what are you doing here? How are you going to take this bad and bring good out of it? How are you going to turn this, what I call a failure, into success? How are you going to bring a victory when the score is 100 to nothing? How are you going to do this, God? We always want God to break the door down, and he's going in through the window and maybe already there. You see, if we're willing to watch the show, that's the kinds of things we get to see. 
And what that does is it moves us from being frustrated with God, convinced he's crazy, mad at God, all of those kinds of things. It moves us to a point where now we're saying, God, you are amazing. God, you are unbelievable how you pull this off, how you're moving. Wow. That's where we get to be instead of where Jonah was. When we accept the reality of God and his love for us, for them, and how genius he is. And nowhere is that more obvious than in the Lord's Supper. And that's why we delayed communion today. Because it is our evidence of God's genius and of God's love. And we're going to take communion. It's an example. You look at Christ on the cross and say, God, what are you doing? You just lost. Of course, we know he didn't lose it all. He won his greatest victory from the ashes of defeat. That's how God works. But that communion is not just evidence of God's genius. It's proof of his love for us. Why we can trust him. And so as we take communion today, as you hold that bread and that juice, may it be a reminder to you of how much God loves you, how committed he is to you, but may it also be a reminder of how much he loves the folks who aren't in this room, who are far from him now, but they're still his children, just like Ninevites. May you be reminded of God's love for all of us as we sing and as we partake. Father, thank you. Thank you for asking Christ to come to earth and die for us to love us that we might live. As we partake of this bread, this juice, may his love for us, your love for us, be very real to us. This is a picture of the Aurora Borealis. And I wanted you to take it home with you to never forget what we've talked about today. Because it's a beautiful illustration of what we talked about today. Um, I am told that this is created, scientists explain, by solar particles when there are storms on the sun's surface and they shoot off extra bursts of solar radiation. Those solar particles travel through space and hit our atmosphere. And when they hit our atmosphere, they stimulate protons in the atoms up there and create these incredible light shows. It, the pictures, the little video clips you can get online are amazing. Those who've actually seen them, it's way beyond any picture. We were talking in the office, and sorry, Ron, I'm going to quote you. She was talking about the one night she'd seen them late at night, and she said, I thought it was the rapture. She said, the whole sky was just green and dancing and on fire. Well, here's the really cool thing about the northern lights. Whether it's cloudy or not, and you and I see them, they're happening. And they're created by the energy of the sun striking our world. I just want you to spell that S-O-N instead of S-U-N. Because the power of Christ is working in our world. Whether we see it or not, cloudy or not, 
It's there. God is at work here as much as he was in Nineveh. He still loves his children, even those far from him, and he's out to find them and to get to know them. And that's what Christ is about. And it's fun to see pictures, but the real thing's even better. But you know what? If you want to see the aurora borealis, you can't stay in the comfort of your home. You've got to go outdoors. And God calls us to not just stay in the comfort of this home. He calls us to go outdoors and see his power and let him use us to bring the power of the sun to the world he died for. I don't want you to ever see the aurora borealis and not think about God sending Christ to touch his world. Have a great week in him.